Last week in the book of Jeremiah, we heard about King Jehoiakim and his rejection of God's word. God had instructed Jeremiah to write down the messages he'd been preaching, and that scroll ended up being read to Jehoiakim in his private apartment at the palace. But he didn't want to hear what God was saying to him, so he cut up the scroll and burned it. In response to that, God said, whatever you might do to the scroll, you can't get rid of my word. You have rejected my call to turn from your sin and be forgiven, and so judgment is coming. Burning the scroll isn't going to stop that. That's what happened in Jeremiah chapter 36. And as we pick up this morning in chapter 37, we've moved forward in time several years. Jehoiakim is now dead, and his son Jehoiachin, also known as Kaniah, only reigned for three months after he took the throne before the Babylonians came and took him away into exile in Babylon. The current king is Zedekiah. We've met him before in the book, and the context of chapter 37, the Babylonians have come back to Jerusalem for the third time, and they have the city under siege. So turn to chapter 37, if you can, it's page 800 in the Green Church Bibles, and 1240 in the larger print Bibles. And we will take the time to read all of chapter 37 and 38. Zedekiah, son of Josiah, was made king of Judah by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He reigned in place of Jehoiachin, son of Jehoiakim. Neither he, nor his attendants, nor the people of the land paid any attention to the words the Lord had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah the prophet. King Zedekiah, however, sent Jehuqal, son of Shelemiah, with the priest Zephaniah, son of Messiah, to Jeremiah the prophet with this message. Please pray to the Lord our God for us. Now Jeremiah was free to come and go among the people, for he had not yet been put in prison. Pharaoh's army had marched out of Egypt, and when the Babylonians who were besieging Jerusalem heard the report about them, they withdrew from Jerusalem. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Tell the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of me, Pharaoh's army, which has marched out to support you, will go back to its own land, to Egypt. Then the Babylonians will return and attack this city. They will capture it and burn it down. This is what the Lord says. Do not deceive yourselves, thinking the Babylonians will surely leave us. They will not. Even if you were to defeat the entire Babylonian army that is attacking you, and only wounded men were left in their tents, they would come out and burn this city down. After the Babylonian army had withdrawn from Jerusalem because of Pharaoh's army, Jeremiah started to leave the city to go to the territory of Benjamin to get his share of the property among the people there. But when he reached the Benjamin Gate, the captain of the guard, whose name was Arijah, son of Shelemiah, the son of Hananiah, arrested him and said, you're deserting to the Babylonians. That's not true, Jeremiah said. I'm not deserting to the Babylonians. But Arijah would not listen to him. Instead, he arrested Jeremiah and brought him to the officials. They were angry with Jeremiah and had him beaten 
and imprisoned in the house of Jonathan the secretary, which they had made into a prison. Jeremiah was put into a vaulted cell in a dungeon where he remained a long time. Then King Zedekiah sent for him and had him brought to the palace, where he asked him privately, is there any word from the Lord? Yes, Jeremiah replied, you will be delivered into the hands of the king of Babylon. Then Jeremiah said to King Zedekiah, what crime have I committed against you or your attendants or this people that you've put me in prison? Where are your prophets who prophesied to you, the king of Babylon will not attack you or this land? But now, my lord, the king, please listen. Let me bring my petition before you. Do not send me back to the house of Jonathan the secretary, or I shall die there. King Zedekiah then gave orders for Jeremiah to be placed in the courtyard of the guard and given a loaf of bread from the street of the bakers each day until all the bread in the city was gone. So Jeremiah remained in the courtyard of the guard. Shephatiah, son of Matan, Gedaliah, son of Pashur, Jehukal, son of Shelemiah, and Pashur, son of Malchijah, heard what Jeremiah was telling all the people when he said, this is what the Lord says, whoever stays in this city will die by the sword, famine, or plague. But whoever goes over to the Babylonians will live. They will escape with their lives. They will live. And this is what the Lord says, this city will certainly be given into the hands of the army of the king of Babylon who will capture it. Then the official said to the king, this man should be put to death. He is discouraging the soldiers who are left in this city as well as the people by the things he's saying to them. This man is not seeking the good of these people, but their ruin. He's in your hands, King Zedekiah answered. The king can do nothing to oppose you. So they took Jeremiah and put him into the cistern of Melchijah the king's son, which was in the courtyard of the guard. They lowered Jeremiah by ropes into the cistern. It had no water in it, only mud. And Jeremiah sank down into the mud. But Ebed-Melech, a Cushite, an official in the royal palace, heard that they had put Jeremiah into the cistern. While the king was sitting in the Benjamin gate, Ebed-Melech went out of the palace and said to him, My lord, the king, these men have acted wickedly in all they have done to Jeremiah the prophet. They've thrown him into a cistern where he will starve to death when there's no longer any bread in the city. Then the king commanded Ebed-Melech the Cushite, Take 30 men from here with you and lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the cistern before he dies. So Abed-Melech took the man with him and went to a room under the treasury in the palace. He took some old rags and worn-out clothes from there and let them down with ropes to Jeremiah and the cistern. Abed-Melech the Cushite said to Jeremiah, put these old rags and worn-out clothes under your arms to pad the ropes. Jeremiah did so and they pulled him up with the ropes and lifted him out of the cistern. And Jeremiah remained in the courtyard of the guard. Then King Zedekiah sent for Jeremiah the prophet and had him brought to the third entrance to the temple of the Lord. I'm going to ask you something, the king said to Jeremiah. Do not hide anything from me. Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, if I give you an answer, will you not kill me? Even if I did give you counsel, you'd not listen to me. But King Zedekiah swore this oath secretly to Jeremiah. As surely as the Lord lives who has given us breath, I will neither kill you nor hand you over to those who want to kill you. And Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, 
this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. If you surrender to the officers of the king of Babylon, your life will be spared and this city will not be burned down. You and your family will live. But if you will not surrender to the officers of the king of Babylon, this city will be given into the hands of the Babylonians and they will burn it down. You yourself will not escape from them. King Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, I'm afraid of the Jews who have gone over to the Babylonians. For the Babylonians may hand me over to them and they will ill-treat me. They will not hand you over, Jeremiah replied. Obey the Lord by doing what I tell you. Then it will go well with you and your life will be spared. But if you refuse to surrender, this is what the Lord has revealed to me. All the women left in the palace of the king of Judah will be brought out to the officials of the king of Babylon. Those women will say to you, they misled you and overcame you, those trusted friends of yours. Your feet are sunk in the mud. Your friends have deserted you. All your wives and children will be brought out to the Babylonians. You yourself will not escape from their hands, but will be captured by the king of Babylon, and this city will be burned down. Then Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, Do not let anyone know about this conversation, or you may die. If the officials hear that I talked with you, and they come to you and say, Tell us what you said to the king and what the king said to you. Do not hide it from us or we will kill you. Then tell them, I was pleading with the king not to send me back to Jonathan's house to die there. All the officials did come to Jeremiah and question him. And he told them everything the king had ordered him to say. So they said no more to him for no one had heard his conversation with the king. And Jeremiah remained in the courtyard of the guard until the day Jerusalem was captured. This is God's word. And this passage is about being in the mud. There's plenty of literal mud in this passage. There's enough to drown in. But you may have noticed mud is also used here as a way of describing a situation that threatens to overwhelm you and suck the life out of you. In fact, there are several other places in the Bible where the Bible compares a bad situation to the experience of drowning in mud. Even today, we talk about getting sucked into a problem, don't we? Or we might say, I feel like I'm sinking in this mess that's going on in my life. It's beginning to overwhelm me. So even if you don't know or I don't know what it's like to sink in literal mud, we have probably experienced circumstances that feel like being sucked under in mud. And the passage we've just read shows us two men who in that sense are in the mud. But they're experiencing two different kinds of mud. First, the focus is on Jeremiah and the mud that comes with faithfulness. The beginning of chapter 37 explains how Zedekiah came to be king. He was made king by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. When Nebuchadnezzar took Jehoiachin away to Babylon, he made his uncle Mataniah king in his place, and he changed his name to Zedekiah. In this culture, changing someone's name was a sign that you had authority over them. 
That was the kind of king that Zedekiah was supposed to be. He was supposed to be a compliant king who would do exactly what the Babylonians wanted. But the trouble is, when you put a weak, compliant king on the throne, he might be weak and compliant with your enemies as well. And that's what happened with Zedekiah. Even though he had sworn an oath to Nebuchadnezzar to be faithful to him, Zedekiah had advisors and officials who had no intention of being faithful to Babylon. And under pressure from those advisors, Zedekiah rebelled against the man who'd put him on the throne. Obviously, Nebuchadnezzar did not like that, so he came and put Jerusalem under siege. But Zedekiah's advisors had a plan. We'll get the Egyptians to come and help us. And sure enough, Pharaoh's army came when they were called. They came marching up from the south, and Nebuchadnezzar was distracted from Jerusalem. He lifted the siege to go and bash the Egyptians. Maybe that caused some dancing in the streets of Jerusalem. At the very least, it seemed things had taken a positive turn. But Jeremiah is not impressed at all. Look what he says in chapter 37, verse 7, in the middle of the verse. Pharaoh's army, which has marched out to support you, will go back to its own land, to Egypt. Then the Babylonians will return and attack this city. They will capture it and burn it down. This is what the Lord says. Do not deceive yourselves, thinking the Babylonians will surely leave us. They will not. Even if you were to defeat the entire Babylonian army that is attacking you, and only wounded men were left in their tents, they would come out and burn this city down. Don't get your hopes up, Jeremiah says. The Egyptians are going to be no help. And even if you succeeded by yourselves in wiping out the Babylonian army, the ones who were left in their hospital tents would hobble off their stretchers and destroy Jerusalem themselves. Why? Because God is against you. This is not really about the Babylonians. They're just God's instrument to deliver his judgment on Jerusalem. So even if all they had left was a few wounded men, God would make sure those wounded men got the job done. As we've seen so often in this book, God's word does not fit in with what's popular. And that means God's prophet will often be very, very unpopular. That's the case here. The mood in Jerusalem has lifted, but Jeremiah has not gone along with the change in mood. He knows the arrival of the Egyptians has not wiped away the sin and guilt of Jerusalem. So the Egyptians are not good news. They can't really solve Jerusalem's main problem. So once again, Jeremiah is seen as the party pooper. And one man in the city decides to punish him for that. Have a look at verse 11. After the Babylonian army had withdrawn from Jerusalem because of Pharaoh's army, Jeremiah started to leave the city to go to the territory of Benjamin to get his share of the property among the people there. But when he reached the Benjamin gate, the captain of the guard, whose name was Arijah, son of Shelemiah, the son of Hananiah, arrested him and said, you are deserting to the Babylonians. 
Back in chapter 32, we heard about Jeremiah buying a field outside Jerusalem. That happened some months after this point when the city was again under siege. And we're not told if this property Jeremiah was going to visit had anything to do with the field he bought in the end. But whether it did or not, he does not get to see the property. Arijah arrests him as a traitor. Did Arijah really believe that Jeremiah was deserting? Possibly. But I think it's much more likely this is a convenient excuse to punish the prophet for his politically incorrect message. How dare he say that this upturn for Jerusalem isn't going to last? So Arijah takes Jeremiah to the officials, and verse 15 says they have Jeremiah beaten and imprisoned in a house, in the house of Jonathan the secretary, in a dungeon. Jeremiah needs to learn that his views are not acceptable. And just recently, in the last few days, we have seen a bit of this going on here in the UK. Just a few weeks ago, I announced on a Sunday morning that Billy Graham's son Franklin was coming to the UK to hold some evangelistic meetings to preach about Jesus in various cities around the country. But it didn't take very long for those who are opposed to Christianity to get themselves organized, putting pressure on the venues Franklin Graham was booked to speak at. And now those venues, all of them, have rushed to say he can't come to their venue. Every single one has excluded him after initially allowing him to book, including Birmingham. This is the head of Samaritan's Purse, an international relief organization who distribute shoeboxes to children, who provide aid in disaster zones. So what terrible thing has Franklin Graham done that all these major cities would be falling over themselves to keep him away? Franklin Graham believes in the biblical definition of marriage which until just about 15 years ago was the view of marriage held by just about everyone in this country. But now the biblical definition of marriage is unacceptable, and so is anyone who agrees with the biblical definition, apparently. Franklin Graham was not coming to speak on that topic. I doubt he would ever have mentioned it. He was coming to speak about salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. But now he's being described online, if you look, as a hate preacher. And he's not allowed to speak on any topic, even God's love. Christians who believe the Bible are beginning to get the message that our views will not be tolerated. But this is not new. Jeremiah's message was not tolerated. So, will Jeremiah decide to change his message? Look at verse 16. Jeremiah was put into a vaulted cell in a dungeon where he remained a long time. Then King Zedekiah sent for him and had him brought to the palace where he asked him privately, Is there any word from the Lord? Yes, 
Jeremiah replied, you will be delivered into the hands of the king of Babylon. No change in Jeremiah's message. But there has been a change in Jerusalem's situation by this point. By the end of chapter 37, we learn that the siege is back on. The Egyptians didn't distract Nebuchadnezzar for long. They retreated back to Egypt pretty quickly. The Babylonians turned right back around to Jerusalem. And the situation becomes dire again. King Zedekiah knows that Jeremiah was right. And in acknowledgement of that, at the end of the chapter, he agrees not to send him back to the dungeon. He will be imprisoned above ground in the courtyard of the guard with a daily ration of bread. Jeremiah has had a taste of being persecuted as a traitor. But it's about to get a whole lot worse. Look at chapter 38, verse 1. Shephatiah, son of Matan, Gedaliah, son of Pasher, Jehukal, son of Shelemiah, and Pasher, son of Melchijah, heard what Jeremiah was telling all the people when he said, this is what the Lord says, whoever stays in this city will die by the sword, famine, or plague, but whoever goes over to the Babylonians will live. They will escape with their lives. They will live. And this is what the Lord says, this city will certainly be given into the hands of the army of the king of Babylon who will capture it. The first question we might have is, why is Jeremiah encouraging the people to surrender? Well, the answer is, the city is going to be overrun. And when that happens, the Babylonians will be ruthless to these people who have rebelled against them and held out against them for so long. Jeremiah is telling the people, you're not going to come out of this gloriously either way. There's no great outcome for you here. But if you surrender, you will at least escape with your lives. Rather than starving to death in the siege, or if you survive that, being slaughtered when the Babylonians break through the walls. Jeremiah loves these people. Amazingly, he does. He really loves them. And he doesn't want them clinging to a false hope that is going to lead them to catastrophe. He wants them to live. And at this stage, the only hope for that is for them to surrender. But look how the officials in Jerusalem interpret Jeremiah's message. In verse 4, Then the officials said to the king, This man should be put to death. He is discouraging the soldiers who are left in the city as well as all the people by the things he's saying to them. This man is not seeking the good of these people, but their ruin. Literally, he's not seeking the peace of these people, but their ruin. The word is shalom. We've come across it before in this book. It means much more than just not having war. It's about comprehensive well-being. All round blessing and prosperity. So these officials say to the king, Jeremiah doesn't want what's best for us. He's against us. He does not want us to be happy and safe. And why do they say that? Because he isn't going along with what's popular. He's not swallowing the accepted wisdom of the day. The wisdom that says, we can fix this mess. Forget God, forget his word, forget repentance. We can fix this by ourselves. We can get shalom our own way. 
And if you disagree, then you're an enemy. You can't possibly love us. Your message is hate speech. Does that sound familiar? When someone calls men and women to turn from sin and receive new life, to trust God's wisdom and obey his word, when they tell people a true shalom can only come through reconciliation with God, and they're labeled as an enemy who's unloving for saying those things. Philip Ryken says, The church of Jesus Christ is like Jeremiah to our culture. We do not say, there, there, everything will be all right. Instead, we say, it's not all right until you get right with God. We do not say, peace, peace. Instead, we say, you will be troubled until you make peace with God. And we proclaim God's grace to this world, announcing free pardon from every sin in Jesus Christ. And yet the response of this world is likely to be, you're a menace to society. Isn't that precisely what has just happened to Franklin Graham? He tried to proclaim free pardon for every sin in Jesus Christ. And Britain said, you're a menace to society. How dare you tell us we're not all perfectly okay just as we are, living how we want to live. Seeking the true welfare of our nation may get you persecuted as a traitor. Jeremiah has already spent time in an underground dungeon, and now he goes even lower down. The king doesn't stand in the way of these officials. So verse 6 says, They took Jeremiah and put him into the cistern of Malchijah, the king's son, which was in the courtyard of the guard. They lowered Jeremiah by ropes into the cistern. It had no water in it, only mud. And Jeremiah sank down into the mud. Earlier in this book, we heard a little bit about cisterns. They're large underground water stores coated with plaster. Here's the kind of thing we're talking about, if you can see that. This one is under Jerusalem, near the temple. It was discovered in 2012. And at this stage in our passage, the siege has depleted the city's water stores. So the cistern is empty, except it's not really empty. The bottom is sludgy mud, and Jeremiah sinks in it. We're not told how much of, him, much of him is still above the mud, but without food or water, he won't keep his head out of the mud for very long. It's dark. Jeremiah didn't have the benefit of those lights in the picture. And there are no windows, just a narrow opening at the top. It's the only way in or out. So there's no air to speak of either. This is a gloomy, muddy tomb. This is the kind of situation you might end up in if you're faithful to God. Jesus Christ ended up in a tomb. Why? Was it because he hated people? Wanted to scare them and make them miserable? No, John chapter 3 tells us why Jesus came to the world. 
God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus' mission was a mission of love, to bring genuine shalom. But, John goes on, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. And so, although the Roman governor Pilate said he could find no basis for a charge against Jesus, Jesus was crucified as a traitor and a blasphemer. That's what can happen if you're faithful to God. But for those who are faithful to God, persecution and even death are never the end of the story. We left Jeremiah sinking in the mud in his gloomy underground tomb. But that was not the end. Verse 7 introduces us to Ebed-Melech, a Cushite. The passage keeps repeating that he's a Cushite. A Cushite was someone who came from either Sudan or Ethiopia. So he's a foreign slave in Jerusalem. And so whatever role he has in the royal palace, it's not a glamorous role. This man is an outsider, but he is a faithful, brave man. A man willing to risk his own neck to save Jeremiah. Abed-Melech goes to the king, who's turned a blind eye to Jeremiah's situation, and he pleads with the king to rescue the prophet. Let me read in verse 10. The king commanded Abed-Melech the Cushite, take 30 men from here with you and lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the cistern before he dies. So Abed-Melech took the man with him and went to a room under the treasury in the palace. He took some old rags and worn out clothes from there and let them down with ropes to Jeremiah in the cistern. Abed-Melech the Cushite said to Jeremiah, put these old rags and worn out clothes under your arms to pad the ropes. Jeremiah did so and they pulled him up with the ropes and lifted him out of the cistern. And Jeremiah remained in the courtyard of the guard. When a man or woman is faithful to God, yes, they might suffer for their faithfulness. They might even die for it. But that is never the end of the story. Every faithful servant of God will be delivered from death. It might be here and now, as it was in Jeremiah's case, or it might be on the other side of death as it was in Jesus' case. But every faithful servant of God will be delivered from death. And so whatever mud comes into our lives because of our faithfulness, it is only temporary mud. We will be lifted out of it into glorious life. But not all mud is like that. Because our passage shows us another kind of mud. The mud that comes with faithlessness. King Zedekiah is a pathetic figure. We notice right at the beginning of this passage, he's only on the throne of Judah because Nebuchadnezzar put him there. So he must have been an obviously weak character to begin with because that's the kind of king Nebuchadnezzar wanted. Someone who would deliver the hefty taxes Babylonian, Babylon was looking for and then keep quiet. 
But it turns out, as we've seen, Zedekiah was so weak, he caves in to his advisors in Jerusalem when they tell him to rebel against Babylon and ask Egypt for help. And we see Zedekiah's weakness in the way he deals with Jeremiah. We know he has a sense that Jeremiah is telling the truth because he's constantly either sending messages to Jeremiah or having Jeremiah brought to him, asking if there's a word from the Lord and begging him to pray to the Lord for the city. Zedekiah flirts with the word of the Lord. At times, he even seems to crave it but he can't bring himself to obey it. And when the city officials get involved and put pressure on the king, he just backs off. He tells them, Jeremiah is in your hands. The king can do nothing to oppose you. Well, he could have if he tried. Eugene Peterson sums up Zedekiah well. Nothing lasted long with Zedekiah. The man was a marshmallow. He received impressions from anyone who pushed hard enough. When the pressure was off, he gradually resumed his earlier state, ready for the next impression. In contrast to Jeremiah, who was formed within by obedience to God and faith in God, Zedekiah took on whatever shape the circumstances required. What a horrible way to be. Forever circling around the truth but never having the courage to accept and obey it. Always backing away when your colleagues or your mates turn on you. There are plenty of people like that in the Bible. Like King Herod in the New Testament. When Herod's wife pestered him about John the Baptist because she didn't like John's preaching, Herod gave in and had John put in prison. And yet we're told Herod liked to listen to John and his preaching about repentance. But when Herod's wife put him under pressure in front of his dinner guests, Herod was greatly distressed. He liked John, but he didn't have the courage to refuse his wife. And so he had John executed that night, beheaded in his prison cell, because he didn't have the courage to say no. Herod was a marshmallow too. So was the Roman governor Felix. Acts chapter 24 tells us when the apostle Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid. And he said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I'll send for you. And even though Acts tells us for two years, Felix sent for Paul frequently and talked with him. He never did anything about Paul's message. Zedekiah, Herod, and Felix. Part of a long line of men and women who flirt with God's word but never commit to it. They're like patients who keep coming back to the doctor again and again with exactly the same problem but they never take the medicine the doctor prescribes for them. Don't be like that. Because faithlessness brings its own kind of mud. And it's way worse than the mud that comes with faithfulness. 
That mud is temporary. You'll be lifted out of it in the end. We're dealing here with a much, much worse kind of mud. When a man or woman refuses to commit to God, eventually they discover all that you dread comes true. What did Zedekiah dread in his situation? Well, he dreaded being unpopular. That's why he always went with the way people pushed him, like a marshmallow. He dreaded falling into the hands of all those people he'd betrayed by changing his position so often. He dreaded being abandoned by God. That's why he kept asking Jeremiah to pray for him. And Zedekiah dreaded death and destruction. That's why he had this pathetic longing to hear God's word of hope, even though he never did anything about it. Those were the things Zedekiah feared. And they all came true for him. After Jeremiah was pulled out of the mud pit, Zedekiah sends for him yet again. Apparently this is a secret meeting. It's in a place where even if they can be seen by other people, they can't be overheard. The king lives his life in fear, not just of the Babylonians outside the walls, but of his own advisors in the walls. Zedekiah promises he isn't going to punish Jeremiah for telling him the truth, nor will he hand Jeremiah over to the officials again. So Jeremiah says, surrender. If you do, the city will still be overcome, but it won't be burned to the ground. You and your family will live. This is an offer of life. But again, Zedekiah backs away. Look at verse 19 of chapter 38. King Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, I'm afraid of the Jews who have gone over to the Babylonians, for the Babylonians may hand me over to them, and they'll ill-treat me. They will not hand you over, Jeremiah replied. Obey the Lord by doing what I tell you. Then it will go well with you, and your life will be spared. But if you refuse to surrender... This is what the Lord has revealed to me. All the women left in the palace of the king of Judah will be brought out to the officials of the king of Babylon. Those women will say to you, they misled you and overcame you, those trusted friends of yours. Your feet are sunk in the mud. Your friends have deserted you. All your wives and children will be brought out to the Babylonians. You yourself will not escape from their hands, but will be captured by the king of Babylon. And this city will be burned down. All these people you're so desperate to please, Zedekiah, they're not real friends at all. They'll abandon you to sink in the mud of this situation. You'll face death and destruction with no allies and no God to pull you out of it. All that you dread, Zedekiah, will come true. Two kinds of mud. One much, much worse than the other. Without being flippant at all, the challenge of this passage is, which kind of mud will you choose? The temporary kind that comes when you live for God and people hate you for it? Or the permanent kind of mud that comes when you reject God and have no escape from death and destruction. Let 
Will you choose to be ill-treated along with the people of God? Or will you choose the false hopes that come with sin and with the wisdom of this world? Zedekiah decided to stick with the wisdom of this world. And the next chapter of Jeremiah tells us it didn't turn out well for him or for all the people who were depending on him. But there's no big surprise about Zedekiah's choice. It's in line with how he always behaved. What is surprising right here at the end of our passage is that Zedekiah tells Jeremiah to lie about their conversation if he wants to save his own skin. The king says to Jeremiah, if they find out you were encouraging me to surrender again, then they'll kill you this time, Jeremiah. So lie to them. Tell them you are pleading not to go back to the dungeon. And the surprise is that Jeremiah does that. Look at verse 27. All the officials did come to Jeremiah and question him. And he told them everything the king had ordered him to say. So they said no more to him, for no one had heard his conversation with the king. And Jeremiah remained in the courtyard of the guard until the day Jerusalem was captured. So under pressure, afraid of going back to that horrible underground prison, Jeremiah lies so he can stay in the more comfortable barracks. What are we to make of that? Well, it tells us if any of us are relying on our perfect faithfulness to save us, then we haven't a hope. Because make no mistake about it, Jeremiah is as big a hero of the faith as you're ever going to get. This guy really is for the Lord, he's all in for God. If there was a competition for the most faithful servant of God, you and I would not beat Jeremiah. But, hero of the faith that Jeremiah was, he was still just a man. And like every man or woman, he had his moments of doubt and weakness and sin. Faithful as he was, Jeremiah was not perfectly faithful. So if our hope for life beyond the grave depended on our performance, then Jeremiah had no hope. And you and I wouldn't have any either. But the message of the Bible is not that we put our hope in ourselves and our performance. Jeremiah's own prophecies keep coming back to a king God was going to send, a descendant of David who would be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. And when the New Testament disciples met Jesus Christ, they slowly began to realize Jesus was that king. He was God, the Lord, and he would save them from their sins. Matthew tells us this. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? That was Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. It picked up on an Old Testament 
prophecy about a man who would have all of God's authority. Who do the people say the Son of Man is? The disciples replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So people could see similarities between Jesus and Jeremiah. They both suffered for the truth that they preached. But what about you, Jesus asked? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Most people could see Jesus was a great man, like Jeremiah. But the disciples were beginning to see something more in Jesus. He was God's anointed king. He was the Messiah. He was greater than any mere man. Jesus could save us from our sin. And he did. By going to the cross and then down into the depths of the grave. Taking an eternity's worth of punishment for sin. And doing it so that you and I wouldn't have to. So if we seek to live for God today, as we seek to live for God, we do it with total commitment. But we don't live in fear that we won't be good enough, that we'll fall short. We live for God knowing Jesus was good enough. He didn't fall short. He was perfectly faithful. He earned our salvation. And as we seek to follow him and serve him, we can do it with no fear of the future. Because of Jesus, we will be delivered from death. We'll live on the other side of the grave, where there will be no more of the mud that comes when people hate us or even hurt us for our commitment to Jesus. That will be gone. So as we close, let's praise God together for all that we have in Jesus Christ. And our last song helps us to do that. Yet not I, but through Christ in me.